Welcome back, Siege fans. As we start the new year, I wanted to do something a little different. Since we just completed Book 5, which is the extent of the books in the series that I've published, I figured to start reading what I have completed so far of Book 6. But since I'm not done writing it, I don't want to go too fast or I'll run out of chapters pretty quickly. So, to give myself a little more time to write and finish the book, I'm thinking of doing a chapter every other week or so. In between, I'd like to explore the history and tropes of prepper fiction. The siege stories didn't spring up in a vacuum, of course, but amid a background of existing prepper fiction. I mean, I had read a lot of prepper fiction before I started writing the siege stories. Like any other genre of fiction, there gets to be some customary plots and customary character types, etc. And while I tended to buck the customary prepper fiction stereotypes in my Siege of New Hampshire series, I wasn't totally counterculture. I was also writing in the context of, and in some cases reacting against, that background of prepper fiction and prepper culture. None of us, whether prepper or sheeple, live in a vacuum. We grow up learning from our own experiences, but also from the experiences of others. One of those cultural inputs that really ought not to be ignored is our arts, particularly the stories we take in, whether they're books or audio or the movies we've watched. Preppers already have a heightened sense of what-if, so we tend to be entertained by what-if scenario stories. Our intellect is pretty good at being able to separate the plausible from the implausible, the fact from fancy. I mean, how many times have you said out loud to your book or to the screen, oh, that would never happen? Our rational side might reject what we saw, but it seems like part of our brains absorbs the visuals and the plot lines on a more visceral level. Those fictional events and tropes, they sneak in and take up residence in our memory. Even if our intellect says, oh, that would never happen, part of our minds remembers seeing it happen. It can become imprinted as if it was an actual experience. I mean, if you told me that a giant alien spacecraft had parked itself in the sky over the city of Johannesburg, South Africa, my rational brain would scoff. But in the back of my mind, I actually have a visual for what that would look like. So maybe I'm not so sure you're wrong. That was a reference to the 2005 sci-fi short Alive in Joburg, by the way. An example of this in action happened back in the 1980s to a friend of mine back in Minnesota. Lewis was driving one of those Renault 5s, marketed here as La Car. Do you remember those? Anyhow, he was going too fast around a broad curve. Those Renault 5s were pretty boxy and kind of top-heavy. He lost control and rolled it into a wide and grassy ditch. The cube of a car rolled like a dice, over and over on a gaming table, finally landing on its wheels. He and his young passenger, a teen boy, were unhurt. His passenger jumped out and ran for all he was worth. Lewis got out, in less of a hurry, and asked him where was he going. The boy said, getting away before it explodes. Now, where did the boy get that idea? I'm willing to bet that he had never been in a rollover before let alone one that exploded seconds later. Where did he get the experience, I made quote marks, to run before a car explodes? Well, from movies and TV. In the movies, vehicles are always bursting into huge balls of flame whenever they tip over. Kind of like tanker trucks in movies, they always explode. 
The only reason for a tanker truck to appear in a movie at all is to blow up spectacularly. A running joke in my family when the kids were young was that, in a movie, even a tanker truck full of milk would explode when it crashed. My point is that, even as rational people trying to be prepared for hard times, we can feel the influence of our culture, like the prepper fiction we read, especially in areas that we don't have any experience yet. We read prepper fiction and watch post-apocalyptic movies. Our rational minds usually dismiss the improbable and absurd, but sometimes the absurd still leaves its imprint. I'd venture to guess that some of those vague worries we have, those ill-defined feelings, especially of doom, tend to draw from the stories that we've absorbed, particularly if we haven't actually experienced that doom before. An example of this is that a huge amount of prepper fiction usually uses a nationwide EMP strike as its setting. Even though none of us have experienced a nationwide EMP, we have in our minds what we think it'll look like and what we think we would do. Some of our guessing is logical, like that we're going to need some alternate forms of lighting, but some of our guessing gets influenced by the fictional experiences we've absorbed. So with that in mind, I'd like to explore some of those cultural prepper fiction influences between readings of chapters of Book 6. Partly because I find the mindset side of prepping for disasters really kind of fascinating. But also, like I said, eh, to give myself some time to write. One of the most common plots in prepper fiction is the get-home story. When I was writing the book one of the Siege series, it was a get-home story, but that was already a pretty common scenario for prepper fiction. I had written book one after reading quite a few get-home stories. I suppose uh, it's writer egotism that after I read all those stories, I thought, heck, I could do that. And so I did. So I figured we would talk about the get-home story as a sort of subgenre of prepper fiction. But to help me talk about those get-home stories, I have with me Brian of nextstepsurvival.com and Jeff, who is the Guardian of Suburbia. Or uh, what is your title anyway, Jeff? Guardian of Suburbia. Okay, that's what I thought. It was on the billboard, so I figured it was good. Anyhow... To get that discussion going for the get-home stories, because they tend to be kind of similar, I mean, I suppose they have to be somewhat similar because you have a guy trying to get home, so, you know, how much can you change things? The stories tend to differ in either realism or in what sorts of tips and tricks the readers can get out of the story. Uh, but they also end up forming vicarious experiences, like I mentioned in my other intro, that not too many of us have necessarily had to walk home because of an EMP. In fact, I'd guess probably very few. So the stories become kind of a background experience of things we haven't done yet. And I'll start it off with a get-home story that I remember well, but I couldn't find the title or I couldn't find the book. I have a folder on the laptop that has a couple dozen, three dozen ebooks of prepper fiction. I thought it was in there, but I went through each one of those, and I can't find it, so I don't know where it was. So I can't even tell you what the title was. But the book itself uh, was about a guy who was by himself elk hunting up in Montana when the EMP takes down civilization. And his story was then his getting home to Texas. 
Happily for him, he drove an early Jeep CJ that was EMP proof. How handy is that? And also very handy for him was that he had all kinds of firearms and ammo in the back of his Jeep, which again, I thought, well, that was a little odd because my uh, my son-in-law goes elk hunting and he doesn't take along a whole lot of firearms and ammo. He takes his one good gun and good scope and a box of ammo. And he figures if he's gone through more than a box of ammo, he's really bad at it. So he's not traveling with a ton. But this character in this book, he traveled with all kinds of firearms. And his journey south was a series of little uh, encounters, mostly with bad people. In most of the cases, I'd noticed the pattern was he would stop somewhere, he'd get involved with some locals. There was a really bad person that was there and he would shoot them and justice would be restored. And then he'd get in his Jeep and he'd keep driving. That was kind of the uh, scenario. Now in that story too, he eventually rescues a beautiful woman who happens to be single and it becomes a love interest story. I mean, you could see it a mile away. So it was kind of typical of the get home genre. But one of the things that I took away from that story, which is what I thought we could talk about, was, well, what did we get out of that? What did I get out of that story? One of the things that I took away from that story is that it's a good idea to travel with lots and lots of guns and ammo. Now, so far, I haven't been able to uh, live up to that lesson. But that's what I took away from that. And the other lesson I learned is that the bullet is the fastest and easiest way to get justice. And again, I thought, well, that kind of works in fiction, but not so much in reality. But anyway, that was that story. It's too bad I can't find it and remember the title. But obviously, it made an impression on me and made me write a book. What about you, Brian? There's some get-home story that you had read that had some significant takeaway lessons for you? Actually, two of them that come to mind is uh, both of them by Franklin Horton. I like Franklin Horton's books. And... One is The Borrowed World. It's a, it's a series. And then the, the Locker Nine. With those, I'll start with The Borrowed World. So, so the, the main character's name's Jim Powell, and he's with five co-workers, and they travel 300 miles to Richmond, or 300 miles from home to Richmond on a business trip. And it's not an EMP style, but it's a series of sleeper cells from Syria, I think. And they launch a series of attacks across United States, crippling the nation's power grid and oil refineries and that stuff. And they have to walk most of the way because, well, he didn't fuel his car before <laughs> before he went to the motel. So as soon as they ran out of gas, they, they had to start hiking it on foot. And they didn't all make it. I guess I should give a spoiler alert for anybody that has not read that book yet. Him and his buddy, uh, Gary, I believe this was his name, they have get home packs and they carry handguns, even though it violates their company policy, which sounds like something that a lot of us might do anyway. So I would carry a get-home pack. I'm not going to admit anything as far as guns, but that might be you know, an option. That seems like a plausible thing to do, a smart thing to do to me. If you're going to take a trip, especially an extended trip, have, have the, the resources or as much resources as you can put on your back. One of the takeaways I get off of that, you can't carry everything on a 300-mile trip on foot on your back. So you're going to have to be creative, have some skills to make it home. You just can't carry that, that, that much food and supplies on your back. You just can't do it. That kind of reminded me of the, uh, 
the classic, I think everybody's read the Going Home story by Angry American. And yeah. I can't remember where he got stranded by an EMP, but again, he had to walk because all the cars died. And he's got to walk. I can't remember if it was like 300 miles or something, but it was a lot. What struck me about his get-home bag, that's what you reminded me of, is his get-home bag must have weighed over 100 pounds because it seems like it had just about everything that he could want in that bag. So he had night vision goggles and he had binoculars and uh, I can't remember what all else it was, but whenever they got he got into a situation, he had something in his backpack that was going to be the solution. And of course, he had lots of firearms and lots of ammo too, which, you know, is okay if you're in, what was he, must have been in like Alabama and going down to Southern Florida. So carrying a firearm worked for him, but hey, if you're, uh, you're Frank and you're in New York State, that's not an option, at least not a legal right. option. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the get-home bag with just about everything in it. And I noticed the guy never got tired. You know, he'd, he'd go a long ways. And I thought, but you've got this heavy bag. Why don't you ever get tired? He was also shooting people a lot. Yeah, they have to keep it interesting. So that's where we have to take everything with a grain of salt when we're dealing with, uh, with a fiction story like that. Mm. A lot of people, I think, as a former hiker, I have to say former now since I haven't hiked in a couple of years, but the, a lot of people, they overestimate their ability on how much weight that they can carry on their pack. And, and I know this from, from hiking, how many times I've regretted packing my pack too heavy. So my extended get-home pack right now is at 35, 36 pounds, and that's a lot of weight yeah. for me. If you go through the YouTube channels, a lot of people are saying 20% of your body weight, and that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, Is that so, a reason to eat more? Yeah. So you can have a bigger pack? So, you know, carrying a 40-pound backpack or 50 pounds, and then like what you were saying, that guy uh, on the Going Home series, I had to been, you know, an 80 or 100-pound pack. It's just, it's not really doable for most of us. Oh, yeah. He also had a goal zero uh, solar array and battery so he could charge up his batteries. So I thought, well, that's good. I guess he traveled with everything. And his night vision goggles. Oh, yeah. Those, those but, and they survived the EMP. Yeah. And I was kind of amused, too, that the EMP would kill all, all kinds of stuff. But that one store owner still had his calculator. So maybe it doesn't actually kill the cheap stuff. It only kills expensive stuff. So what about you, Jeff? What uh, what sort of get-home stories stood out to you? Well, I went with one that was uh, a little less off the radar. It wasn't as popular as, you know, the get-home or uh, one second after. But uh, it's called 77 Days in September by Ray Gorham. And what I really liked about it, and, and not to get into a review style, but this guy was an idiot. The main character, as oh, far as not the writer, the no, 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 no it, uh, the character was completely unprepared, so which made it very realistic from a standpoint. You know, he wasn't grabbing a, a Glock 17 on page one from his uh bug out bag, but as all main characters, they survived the, the initial plane crash and and then the long walk, similar to your, your story, Mick, except this guy's going from Texas to Montana instead of Montana to Texas. Yeah, maybe they passed on the way. In a Jeep, so maybe they were sharing it back and forth. Mm. But yeah, this guy had no 
everything he gathered was just along the way. He was smart enough to make a couple of decent friends, and he wasn't really into the whole tactical kill him first and find out later. There, there's a lot of scenario-based conversations and things that happen, and which is what, something I really kind of drew me into. That Because in the beginning, with all the people that don't recognize what's happening, he's trying to sell the fact that it's not coming back and, and people need to start responding and, and reacting the right way. But so, I mean, I can see a little bit of the, the real world challenges that we'll face. But yeah, I mean, really, this thing doesn't even get to the to the actual event until the third chapter. So it's just kind of all setting it up and it, and it takes a while to, to pull you in. It's pretty uh, more character development, I guess. Oh, there was the, a lot of a lot of setup before the event. Right. You know, it, it, the story just goes back and forth between the realities of what his family's facing back home without him. You know, approaching winter in Montana is probably a little colder than uh, where I'm at. In that 77 days in November, I think that was November, but he... September. Or September, yeah. He had some of the things where he was walking along the highway and he would seek shelter inside of broke down trucks or abandoned vehicles and stuff like that. That seemed like a good plan. You know, he's pushing a, a cart, an improvised cart that they threw together with, some, I think, some bike tires or something. And um, finding some uh, abandoned vehicles to stay the night or to get his rest and stuff. He, at one point, without, you know, a spoiler alert again, he he lost all of his stuff at one point because he had left it below a trailer or something. I think something of that value to you, you your, your resources to make it home, I think I wouldn't never leave sight of that. So that... That was a little odd, but like you said, he was kind of an idiot. But you you would uh, probably want to guard that basically with your life, you know, your food and your water and your weapon and stuff like that. Well, the the first time he almost lost it and and about got his brains beat in for it, he was walking up the interstate pushing it, and he allowed a group of guys to come walking up behind him. And and at that time he was armed. It, it really kind of ticked me off that how in the world in this scenario. Would you allow somebody to get that close to you? And he knew they were following him. He was just, I don't know, allowing it to happen. It was just one of those scenarios that, you know, don't do that. And he had a good Samaritan that helped him with the with the power of storytelling, you know, from the from the author and stuff. But in real life, he probably would that would have probably been the end of his trip. Yep. You have to take the scenario that that you know the circumstances into consideration. That would have been the time to maybe show you up and maybe even, you know, just stay back. You know, don't come over here. It's not a time to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So is that the takeaway lesson you got out of that, Jeff, is uh, be a little more mindful of folks around you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you know they're following you, you have to become the aggressor at some point and deal with that situation. You don't let them come up and grab you. They, they're never going to get within arm's reach. That's a no-no. Did that happen in Borrowed World, too? Did he run into people that uh, tried to ambush him? Yeah, yeah. They had a issue with some people that were, you know, because a lot of his hike was through the Appalachian Trail, where they had some low-life hike criminal people driving uh, four-wheelers, which you're not supposed to operate, you know, motorized vehicles, but it's the end of the world, so you can just do whatever you want. So they were driving the, uh, taking hikers' equipment, their packs and stuff, and killing the hikers and they almost became one of those uh dead hikers on the trail that donated their equipment and their packs to these bad guys but 
everything's got a happy ending, right? On these books. One important takeaway that I thought from the the Borrowed World series was Jim Powell, who was, like I said, was the main character. He had set up a, a binder for his wife should something happen while he was away. He, he had tabs on there like situation normal, situation elevated, situation critical, and situation bug out. So she could go and open up the binder and basically get instructions on what to do, you know, secure the house, lock the gate, board up the windows, that type of stuff. You know, get cash out of the bank, take cash from the house or out of the safe, go and buy last minute supplies if you can, get as much fuel as you can, type of things like that. Because he lost power before she did and he couldn't call her because the cell towers were overwhelmed. But as we've heard you know, in the proper community before, sometimes a text will go through. So he was able to text with her every now and then. It seems like the planning on these stories plays a huge role. And that makes a lot of sense to me, you know, where you formulate your plan before you need it, not trying to coordinate those type of instructions 300 miles away via text, if you can even do that. He allowed his wife to take control of the situation because they had this, the same situation without the travel at home. So Jeff, in 77 days in September, you say he was a clueless rube. Obviously, not a lot of planning went into his trip. Did he get organized along the way, or was it all just sort of one serendipitous thing after another, and he happened to live? No, he's the main character, so he catches all the breaks. All the nice people along the route are are willing to help him, and he helps a lot of people along the way, too. I, I think the biggest thing is he was quick to, once he did realize what was going on, his first thing was a food plan. So, so I got to give him props for that before he even started his 1500 mile journey back to Montana, he was kind of setting himself up for the road. Although I would have probably got more than one box of ammo and one handgun. Did he have a choice? Well, I mean, he took that off a dead guy, so. Well, that's about that's all the store had. <laughs> but he did. He he was pretty resourceful. And like Brian was talking about, you know, the, the places that he chose to to kind of get off the road and sleep. He, he wasn't building a treehouse every night. He, he was just kind of taking what was available to him. It, it's a pretty good story. I, I liked it. Some of the stuff that his wife and family had to deal with back home was probably pretty realistic as far as, you know, when community services break down, how fast can a community organize and uh, start getting some kind of structure to organization, you know, to deal with the crisis? Because obviously nobody knows how long it's going to be. Well, that was one of my questions for both of you guys in the stories you'd read. How much did the main character know, omnisciently via the author, why the grid went down and why they were stranded? Did that somehow inform them to say, well, this isn't going to be better in a week? How did they know? Well, okay, my character, Kyle Tate, just kind of uh, started putting the pieces together. The airplane crash and cell phones didn't work. No electricity at the airport. People's cars didn't work when they tried to leave the airport. But going back to the guy that drives his Jeep CJ7 to the airport, it worked. So you start narrowing down. Obviously, there's not a mushroom cloud in sight. So it wasn't an actual nuke. Yeah, the right time of day, you're not going to see an EMP go off. So I think he just assumed based off some reading that he had. Now in the borrowed world, he had, I think, access to a radio. He was a prepper as well, so he already knew, you know, when the, the power went out in the hotel and the car wouldn't start, 
you know, and that type of thing. And I believe it's, it's hard to remember, but I believe that he had access to emergency radio or something. And they were doing the emergency broadcasting saying, you know, I don't believe they said it was an EMP, but at, at some point, you know, just like Jeff said, you know, all the signs were there and they put it together. Although we don't know if all the cars are going to shut down, right? So no. like in, uh, in Jeff's book, 77 days in September, the Jeep may have worked because he was in the lower level of a parking structure. So you have a lot of reinforced concrete and that type of stuff. So that may have helped. The age of the vehicle might have helped. And so we don't know that all the cars are going to shut down. But in so most they, models, they do. They just all stop dead right where they are. Does that make sense? Yeah, this, this, one, this one was in 1978. They did specify it. Yeah. So it's the pre-1980 model. Yeah. So, Brian, what was Locker 9? You mentioned that as another story. Locker 9 by the same same author was the main character is probably uh the daughter but the the father's named robert hardwick the girl from locker nine that's her handle that he had given her you know for other people but he did a lot of work ahead of time so he had set her up at the college with a go bag and it gets into a lot of unrealistic pepper items but he does rent a storage unit that she can go to and she has to jump a couple of hoops to try to figure out where, how to get to this and everything via a necklace that she wasn't ever supposed to take off and everything. But it was full of all the equipment, including diesel. She drove a diesel pickup truck, I think a three-quarter ton pickup. And it had the diesel all there for her to make the trip home. And he had prearranged with our community. The main character was a, a novel writer, proper novelist. So I guess he had access to preppers all over the country. So he had set up a map with probable or potential stops to make along the way and get help from their online community. She went from several of those. And there was a lot of uh, lessons on that too that I thought was realistic. One of the stops that she went to go get help from, you know, on the on the way there to stop and refill her water or whatever, you know, that her resources and to get some help for staying overnight and that type of thing. Again, this is a spoiler, but this is a, a proper community that we hear. So say Jeff has some property and a homestead and, and he invites everybody around his local community, the preppers that he trusts to come in the event of an EMP or something similar, come, come here, bring, bring what you can. And we're all going to have our little uh, community here and protect each other. Well, that went sideways before one single person made it. So they lost that while she was there visiting. So. Those mag-type uh, situations, they're not foolproof, right? So, I mean, if you set up your communities and, and have people expect to, you know, show up and bring their stuff, they may not show up, and then the wrong person may show up and put a, a wrench into the gears. So that kind of, everything went wrong with that, and that, the whole homestead went up in flames. So what did you get out of that story? What was your uh, takeaway? You said, hey, that's interesting. A lot of things, actually, that you know, the pre-planning that the father had done. You're a prepper, and you have resources, and you have a, you're not rich, but you have some funds and stuff, and you want to set her up for the best chance to get home if something goes on. That made a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, setting up with the equipment. Like I said, it, it got a little bit crazy or carried away, in my opinion, as far as what type of stuff with the ARs and stuff. You know, it's just probably a little bit more than most of us would want to leave sitting in a locker somewhere 
but then having the, the community and all of that for her trip home, it go, it's an entire series. So it, I don't know how many books. So I just like, I'm trying to stay with the first book, but later on, he, he has more to do with some of those, those fellow preppers that he stayed in touch with. Communication was a problem. Another thing that he did, and you got to give kudos to this author because I've never heard this in the proper community outside of this book series, is he had her go to mileage signs, you know, where you see Hartford, Connecticut, 33 miles. If she could safely do so, this, to pull off the side of the road with a Sharpie and write, I think her initials or something, I don't remember what she was supposed to write, but just basically mark that sign that she had been there. So if he has to go back, retrace her route, he would have an idea of where she got off track. thought that was unique. What about you, Jeff? In uh, the 77 days, did you come away with any, uh, hey, I could use that information? No. <laughs> Other than don't be a rube? No, I, I you know, and I, and I kind of give him not a lot of props, but, you know, he adapted quick. He uh, he was one of the few in there that kind of accepted his situation and tried to make the most of it. He wasn't in the in the standard realm of the genre that we're that we're talking about. He didn't go into it with a bag. He started with nothing. Yeah, I mean, other other than some real bonehead decisions along the way, it, you know, he he made it work. He obviously made it to Montana. I mean, this was from the standpoint of getting anything out of it is a, a, a lot of things of what not to do. But what I really liked, it took more time to draw out a more of a mental scenario with a, a threat approaching and how he kind of learned to realize that he didn't want to be walking through the most populated part of town and, and that kind of thing. So I guess a question for both of you, to kind of wrap it up, is after you've read uh, a handful or however many you've read, of uh, prepper fiction with the get home stories. Did anything in the stories influence what you put in your get home bag? See here, I'm presuming you've all got get home bags. Not me. No, didn't change your get home bag at all. No. Oh, I added, I added a bunch of stuff. You know, I, I got the uh, night vision stuff and I have, you know, I carry two AR and an AK 47 with extra hundred round boxes for each. Yeah. Well, you joke, but, I was listening to a podcaster a couple of months ago, and he was going on and on about the virtues of carrying night vision goggles with you in your get-home bag. And I had to kind of wonder if, if he had read the Going Home story by Angry American, and that kind of uh, skewed his thinking. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't uh, change much. If, if anything, I just did a video, and if anything, I've taken things out of my pack just for expedience and weight. A lot of these books are for entertainment, so but we can't take some things away from it. I have an extended get home pack that has a lot more stuff than my you know little twenty four hour or less get home pack, but I don't carry tents and all that type of stuff i'm I'm well aware of the 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 weight issue with that, and you're not trying to injure yourself on a three hundred mile trip home or something on foot you You have to be a little bit more smart than that and a little bit more stealthy and 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 speed, you need to be able to make some time, especially if winter's coming up or if you're in the middle of winter and stuff. You, the best way not to freeze to death is to keep moving. You want to be able to do that without having to stop every five minutes and catch your breath. You know, and a lot of us aren't in the shape we used to be. Even the younger generations now aren't always in pristine shape. You know, 
athletically. I think it's, I think we have to have a nice balance, you know, take a lot of a possible might need some time, maybe take that out of the bag. Another option is if you have a continuous, you know, this is a little bit off topic, but if you had a place to choose, like, for example, if you worked 50 miles away, it might be a worthwhile to cash something halfway, you know, some water and if you wanted ammo or whatever, some of the heavier stuff. Yeah, I kind of used uh, about the caching when I worked in Boston, but the problem with that is anything between my house and Boston is somebody else's house. So right. it's kind of hard to put it somewhere that they're going to not dig it up or throw it away. Yeah, even even in the scenario where on the Locker 9 series where he already set up with different preppers and like-minded people in route, if something goes sideways to the point that they're running low on supplies, you're probably going to lose your supplies, right? So mm-hmm. even if you found somebody somewhere in the middle of that that trip and cashed some stuff, if they're in the same situation, you might not get access to that either. There's no uh, foolproof solution. Nothing is nothing goes as planned. And so I kind of went with like the same type of thing as Jeff. Is like a lot of the things I wouldn't carry like the bulletproof vest on the uh, Borrowed World series. Uh, Gary got shot. That's his prepper buddy. And he said, oh, I'm doing a spoiler again. I'm sorry. But he, he gets <laughs> shot and he's wearing a, uh, a flap jacket type of thing. You know, it's just like I, every little thing that you're carrying, unless it's written into the script, it may just be a waste of weight. So, Jeff, if you uh, have your get-home bag, how far do you typically think you're going to have to walk for a get-home as the crow flies, 1.8 miles. So you could do a 60-pound pack with night vision goggles. I'm not doing it. <laughs> but you could. Maybe. Actually, I, I, I really don't even carry a large pack at all. I, I carry a sling pack. I mean, it's basically got some first aid and extra ammo. And, and that's my, my goal this year is to, to walk home one day, just to see the time-wise. Mm. It, it, it's a straight shot whether i take the long way the short way that's my goal i'm gonna set myself up and uh and do it see how it goes and uh I, i'm all for learning skills and and pick up the little things along the way and you can sleep in abandoned cars on the way except that yeah, it's only a mile and a half so what you don't have to stop and sleep yeah but like going back to what when you were working down in boston mick did they tell you where the train was going to break down? How could you possibly set a cache anywhere along that route? Well, yeah, that's kind of the problem. And like I say, the East Coast is so populated that mm-hmm. anywhere that's anywhere, I mean, even if it's along an interstate right away, there's road crews that are going to say, hey, what's that over there? And dig it up. So yeah. there, there's not a lot of wilderness for you to hide something in, which is why I've never really entertained the idea of caching too awfully much. But even then, I only had 50 miles. I figured, all right, three days, travel light. What about you, Brian? If you had a get-home bag, how much time or distance would you have to do to get home? I'm a local truck driver, and the furthest I go right now with the route that I have is about 23 miles from from home. It's just an overnight. So if it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, end of business, and everything goes sideways, then I can probably be home before light, I guess. I'd walk through the night. So that's not too bad. I've got my get home pack that I carry with me every day, everywhere I go. And it's between 10 and 12 pounds. And it's got very little in there. And then 
what I carry on my person. And then I also carry EDC pack that I can rob from if I need to, to add a little to that. With the extended pack, 35 pounds, I go to North Carolina generally to Ocean Isle to go on vacation. We have a resort down there that I have access to. And then uh, Georgia, I have a son in Savannah, Georgia. And I have a son in outside of Columbus, Ohio. So those trips there, that's where the extended pack comes in. If we take a trip up north or, you know, just on a weekend type of thing, I'll take the extended. But usually I'm in a vehicle, so I take way more than that. I have an emergency kit in all of our vehicles, and I'll start throwing stuff. I mean, it's just ridiculous when we go to, to North Carolina how much equipment I take with me. But I'm, I'm never really planning on walking home. You know, it's all in the back of a pickup. So it's just, you know, locked up back there. All right. Well. I think we've uh, chatted long enough, so I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap it up here. Like I said at the outset, it's been visited by my friends Brian of nextstepsurvival.com. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's it. Okay. And Jeff, who has no website but is guarding the suburbs? Correct. All right. Well, the suburbs are safe. So uh, thanks, guys. And uh, we may have to do this again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks, Appreciate Mick. it, Mick. All right. Bye, guys. Bye now. There you have it. That was my conversation with Jeff and Brian about the get-home story subgenre of prepper fiction. While I didn't read the books that they mentioned before writing my book one, I had read many like them. And if you recall book one, and that seems like such a long time ago, huh? You could probably spot little places where I was making references to all of those pre-existing stories. Of course, as I said before, when I wrote up book one, I didn't think that I was writing the first book in a series. It was mostly just me dabbling in that get-home genre. Well, before we go, I'd like to give a shout-out to Anne and Jack for buying me coffees this past week, and to welcome Melvin, the newest member of the Siege Club at Buy Me a Coffee. Happy to have you as a member there, Melvin. Up next week should be Chapter 1 of Book 6. We'll see how that goes. Thanks for listening.